You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Well, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to go to Exodus chapter 34 as we continue our series that we have entitled God Has a Name, a series where we are walking through um, the most quoted passage of Scripture in the Bible by the Bible, a passage that was kind of the John 3.16 of its day where God is declaring what he is like by giving us his name. And if you remember from last week, we talked about how in Western culture in America, a name is really nothing more than a label or a tagline. But in the ancient Near East, a name is a person's identity. It sums up who they are. It's their way of being. And so whenever God declares to us his name, he's saying, this is what I'm like. This is who I am so that you can relate to me in a life-giving and flourishing way. From our experience, there are a lot of people in Northeast Arkansas who would say they are Christians, but there are very few people who would say they are enjoying God. And we believe that's because there are very few people who have a proper understanding of who God is, and Exodus 34 is here to give us that understanding. And so last week, if you remember... We talked about the Lord, and this week as we dive in, we're just going to continue to work through this text. So look with me in verse 5. We'll read Exodus 34, verse 5, 6, and 7. And then we'll dive into it. I'm reading from the NIV translation. Uh, also, just a reminder that all the sermon notes, uh, or a good chunk of them, are on the YouVersion Bible app. So if you have that, uh, you might want to access those. Exodus chapter 34, starting in verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud, and he stood there with Moses... And he proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes their children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again so much for everyone who gathered this morning. Um, I thank you that you are here. I just ask that right now that, Father, you will help us to be here with you, that you would open our eyes, um, that you would open our ears to receive exactly what it is that you have for each and every single person here today. And I pray that that truly as a result of the time that we have together, that we will leave enjoying you more, that we will taste and see that you really are as good as you say you are. And it's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen. Amen. So imagine with me for a moment living in 1500 BC in the ancient Near East, okay? You're out in the middle of a desert, which is now modern-day Saudi Arabia, and because you're living in a pre-modern uh, era, you are living in a time period that is filled with gods and goddesses that are fickle, malicious, mean-spirited to the core, and flying off the handle at just the slightest of fraction. So if you are living in this time period, what do you do? Well, naturally, you make sacrifices so that you can try to keep the gods 
on your side and off of your back. And so maybe if you were living uh, during this era, you would start with a small sacrifice, like you would sacrifice a bird or a goat. But if that didn't work, you still didn't feel like you're being blessed by the gods, you would ratchet it up to a bull or an ox. And then if that didn't work, you might even consider sacrificing your own child. Uh, how many of you in here remember in history class studying the Battle of Troy? Anybody? A few of you. If nothing else, think of Brad Pitt. Okay. Um, you might remember the story of uh, the Greek king uh, Agamemnon, Agamemnon uh, sailing across the Mediterranean with his army, and they are heading to fight in the Trojan War. However, their fleet is dead in the water, right? There is no wind, so there is no movement. And because it is believed that Artemis, who is the great Greek goddess, is mad at Agamemnon, it is believed that only a sacrifice of his own daughter will appease her wrath and therefore give them the victory that they need. So if you remember the story, what does the king do? Well, he makes a brutal sacrifice of his daughter, and right after that, as the story goes, the wind begins to blow, they move, and eventually get the victory. Now, is this myth, or is it history? It's kind of hard to tell, honestly. Um, Either way, it is a great picture of what life in the ancient Near East was like. And therefore, if you were alive in this time period, as you could imagine, you would live in constant fear of the gods. But then imagine one day you hear about a whole other God, a a different God, the one true creator God who has no equal, a God who is nothing like Artemis or none of the other evil gods or goddesses of this day, but a God who actually tells you his name, a God who wants a relationship with you, a God who wants to know you and be known by you. And what is amazing is whenever you begin to learn about this God as he declares to you his name. When you look in Exodus 34 to tell you what he is like, what I want you to notice, if you look back with me in the text, is the very first thing that God wants you to know about him. At the top of the list, and in the Hebrew literature, order mattered. At the top of the list, the top number one thing God wants you to know about himself is that he is, quote, compassionate and gracious. Or in the original language, he is rahum wa nahun, which I know is an absolute mouthful. But it's actually a word pairing in the Hebrew, which means not only that it's two words that sound alike, but they are words that are mutually illuminating, meaning they are laid side by side so that they can explain the other. And therefore, if we want to understand this, we need to kind of break these two words apart. So if you look at that first word, compassionate or rahum, what you need to understand is that this is a word that comes from the root Hebrew word that means a feeling that a father or a mother has towards her child. And so let me just read a couple of verses that have this word in it. Psalm 103, 13 says this, as a father has compassion or rahum on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Isaiah 49:15 says this, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no rahum or compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you declares the Lord. I was thinking about my wife this past week when I read this text and how there are times where my one of my three kids will cry in the middle of the night. And while I'm like still rustling around like, you know, like, babe, do you got it? Do you want me to get it? Like she's already across the house and in the room comforting and consoling our kids no matter what time of the morning it is. 
And why is that? Because my wife is compassionate towards our kids. And, and, and actually, interesting enough, um, the same is true for me. Um, though I, by nature, um, this may come as a surprise to some of you, by nature, I'm not the most compassionate person in the world. Um, and though I'm not really a kid person, uh, mainly because I like things to be quiet and orderly and, and neat, um, what's interesting is I still... I am so compassionate towards my own kids. I mean, they melt my heart like butter. I was thinking about my son Moses this past week, and I almost put the video on there for you, which would have been more for me than for you, so I could watch it again. But uh, I actually got this on video where he comes up to me. I'm in the living room trying to do some work, and he said, Dad, Dad, I got a boo-boo, just like that. And uh, he's, he's two and a half, by the way. Some of you are like, how old is he? Is he 15, 16? Like, um, and so he's two and a half years old. And, uh, man, it just melted my heart. And, and if you know, uh, anything about me, you know I'm a germaphobe. So what I'm about to say is a big deal. I find out the boo-boo is on his foot. And so I pick up his little grimy, dirty, nasty foot and I just kiss his boo-boo. And immediately, like, he's fine. He wants to then wrestle with me. So we're wrestling around the floor and we're laughing and we're having a good time. And listen, what I want you to realize is, guys, that is just a glimpse. It is just a faint echo of how the Lord feels about his kids, about you and about me. And what's so tragic, I think, is for some of you, like this does not connect at all because for some of you, your family of origin was so warped. Your dad never said that he loved you or he was mad at you all the time or you had a mom who was a perfectionist. She was always nagging, always critical or condescending. You were never pretty enough or skinny enough or athletic enough, or smart enough, or, or good enough. Or maybe for some of you had parents that just were not around. And therefore, this idea of a God who loves the father or mother, loves her kids, just doesn't resonate with some of you. It doesn't connect. But if you have kids, if you yourself are a parent, I think if you just stop for a moment, this will tap into a deep place in your own heart. Because if you have a kid, you know there is no love as fierce as the love a mother or a father has for their own kids. I think about my son, Wyatt, who, uh, whenever he was in preschool, he, one day we're walking into class, and um, he, you could tell he was hesitant. He said, Dad, I don't want to go to school today. And, and he just began to, to, to get tears well up in his eyes. And I said, what's going on, son? And he said, there's a kid in class who's picking on me. He, he's being mean to me. His name's Bryce. And uh, I was trying to kind of play it cool, but I was beginning to just like, like shake on the inside. And I was just kind of like, really, son? Like, uh... Like, what, like, where's this kid at? Like, you know, like, like, uh, is he, uh, what color hairs you got? You know, like I'm getting antsy and come to find out they were in the same room together. So I walked Wyatt into the room and without even thinking about it, I point out Bryce and I go, I'm watching you just like that right there <laughs> to which terrified him. He sees this kid's five years old, right? Terrified him. And I look, I just got to my knees and I looked at Wyatt and I said, look, if, if he continues to pick on you, you go and you tell the teacher, she doesn't anything about it. I'll talk to the principal and then I'll go talk to his dad if they don't know anything about it. Like, I don't even know how big his dad is, but I'm like, I don't even care. Right. And why is that? Because the love a parent has for their kid is stronger than really any other kind of love that's out there. It's stronger than what a soldier feels for their country or a sports fan feels for their team. I mean, it is a emotive, deep, in the marrow of your bones kind of love that is stronger than life itself. And this is the way God feels about you. Now, that being said, the word rahum or compassionate is a feeling word. But in contrast, the word gracious or hanun is an action word. Meaning that to be compassionate is to feel a certain way about someone. 
But to be gracious is to actually do something in response to your compassion. And so, for example, flip over with me to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. And if you're like, I don't want to turn there because I don't know where it is and I don't want to look stupid. Um, most of us do not know where it is. It's just tucked away in the Minor Prophets. And if you need help finding it, there's Ezekiel, then Daniel, then Hosea, then Joel, then Amos, Obadiah, then Jonah. So Jonah chapter 1, you can also use your table of contents if you need to. That is not cheating. Um, but if you don't want to turn there, we'll also put it on the screen for you. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, we read the following. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, if you're new to ancient history or the Bible in general, what you need to know is that Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which is the dominant empire of its day, which, by the way, also just so happens to be the arch enemy of God's people, the Israelites. And if you know anything about the Ninevites, they really are the stuff that legends were made of. In fact, a few decades ago, archaeologists, uh, they unearthed a library from Nineveh, which is now in modern-day Iraq, and the writings were just crazy. For example, the Assyrian king uh, Shamanazer, speaking of a city that he just destroyed, had this to say. A pyramid of heads are reared in front of his city. And whose city is talking about? I'm about the king he just conquered. Their youths and their maidens are burnt up in flames. Here's another one from uh, Shamanazer's son, uh, Sennacherib. He says this, I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their gullets and entrails run down upon the wide earth. Their hands I also cut off, just for good measure. Let me show you just a couple more. This one is from uh, one of Sennacherib's descendants who had this to say about another king he defeated in war. I flayed him. His skin I spread upon the wall of the city. And then just one more. I pierced his chin with my keen dagger. Through his jaw I passed a rope, put a dog chain upon him, and made him occupy a kennel. So there's more I could read, but I think the point is clear. These are not very nice people. Can we all agree? These are very wicked people, and therefore, if you're Jonah, you probably don't want to go plant a church in Nineveh either, right? I mean, you're not going to have a lot of compassion and grace towards these kind of people, which is why in verse 3, it says this, upon God commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh, it said, but Jonah ran away from the Lord, and he headed where? For Tarshish, which for the record is in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. Nineveh is a three days journey to the east. Tarshish is to the west on the complete other side of the ocean. Literally, in the ancient world, it was the last city on the map. Okay? So he heads to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound to the port. And then after paying the fare, he went and he aborted and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So Jonah runs the exact opposite direction. But notice according to verse 3, who is Jonah running from? Yeah, not the Ninevites, as terrifying as they were, but Jonah is running from God. Now the question is, why? And in order to get an answer to this question, you have to look in chapter 3, where, long story short, after a big storm and a run-in with the fish that apparently has digestive issues and poetry, Jonah preaches literally the worst sermon in the history of the world, where he gets up in front of these people, and this is the whole sermon. Forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 
And then he just walks off the stage and says, God bless, right? Actually, he doesn't even say God bless. He doesn't, he, he, there's no introduction. There's no conclusion. There's no funny stories to keep your attention. There's no quotes. There's no scripture to back up his claims. Just 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then he leaves. And to Jonah's surprise, as he sits up on a hill waiting for God to destroy them, instead, the whole city, including the king, repents. It's crazy. I mean, if you look in, in chapter 3, verse 6, it says, When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in dust. This is the proclamation he then issued to the Ninevites. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals or herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. So he, he issues literally, he commands a nationwide fast. Verse 8. But let the people and the animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And who knows? God may yet relent. And with, what's the word? What's the word? With compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So again, this is the same guy who has been skinning people alive and now he is leading the whole nation in repentance saying, hey, maybe if we'll repent rather than God destroying us, he will relent and he'll actually forgive us. And so what does God do in response to this? Verse 10, when God saw what they did, he says, I don't care. It's too late. And he kills them all. Is that what he does? No, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Now, that word relented in the Hebrew is the word nahamed. And listen, it literally means that God changed his mind. Which for some of you, you're like, hang on, wait a minute now. Last week, you said God never changes. And that is true. God's character never changes. However, because he is a relational being, our prayers and our actions, though they do not change who God is, they do in fact change how he acts. And we actually see that right here, where in this shocking turn of events, these wicked people repent, they turn from worshiping their idols to worshiping God, and then out of compassion, God sees their repentance and in the grace, rather than destroying them, forgives them. To which you would expect Jonah at this point would explode with joy. But instead, he literally becomes like a four-year-old little boy throwing a temper tantrum. And so if you look in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. What seemed wrong to Jonah? God's compassion. God's grace. The Ninevites, right, God not killing the Ninevites is what seemed wrong to Jonah. This seemed very wrong to Jonah, so he became angry, verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord, is this not what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why, he's going to tell us now why he was running from God, why he did not go to Nineveh when God commanded him. This is why I was staying at home, that is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish, and here's what he does, he literally quotes back to God, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The reason I ran is because I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending disaster. In other words, you want to know why I didn't want to go to Nineveh? Because I knew if I came here, you would forgive my enemies. These people who have been hurting me and my family for centuries, I knew that you'd be gracious and compassionate to them, and I wanted none of it. The reality is, we love it when God is compassionate and gracious to us, don't we? But what about whenever God is compassionate and gracious to people you hate? 
What about whenever God is compassionate and gracious to people who have hurt you or your children? Like the Ninevites have. What about whenever God is compassionate and gracious to the boss who fires you without a cause? Or the person who publicly slanders you on Facebook? Or the person who lies about you? What about whenever God is compassionate to him or to her? Jonah said, God, this is why I did not want to come here. Because I knew, I knew that I knew that I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger, abandoned in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. And listen, guys, that's the problem with this God. That's the problem with the one true creator, God. You just cannot trust him to hold back from blessing people who don't deserve it. I mean, he just goes around. It's so frustrating. He goes around all the time blessing all sorts of jacked up people who do not deserve it. People who are not religious, who aren't spiritual, who don't have a good resume. People who aren't, uh, people who are, who aren't socially acceptable. People who just aren't even good. And if you don't believe that, I'm living proof of it. Because when I was 20 years old and God broke into my life, I was a self-righteous, closet sex addict who was on academic probation and did not have a job. My life was an absolute mess. And to be honest, in many ways my life is still a mess. There's many days where I still am like, man, I feel like I've maybe grown that much over the last 15 years. As I shared with you in the God and Sexuality series, though I've never physically cheated on my wife, I have cheated on her in my head more times than I can count. The things that have crossed my mind, if they were on the screen, I would literally just run out out of embarrassment. When I look at my life, I see places every single week where I blow it. And yet, despite my sin, despite the fact that even on my best days, I deserve hell, God, because he is compassionate and he is gracious, continues to pursue me and love me and bless me. That's what this God is like. Now, does God get angry? Yes. Does God punish sin? Does he punish sin? Yes. And we're going to talk more about that next week. But for now, all I want you to see... What I want you to see is that God's baseline, his natural default setting towards you is compassion and grace. With that being said, look with me quickly to Luke chapter 18. Because we see this even more clearly displayed for us in the New Testament through Jesus, who is God in the flesh. Luke chapter 18. We're going to look at a couple more places this morning and then we'll be done. The Bible is clear that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of God's glory. So if you're ever like, hey, what is God the Father like? You just look at Jesus, and he gives you a ground zero look at this is what God is like. This is a picture of him. And in Luke 18, verse 35, here's what we read. Jesus, as he approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told the blind man, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So he called out, Jesus, Son of God. Which is, by the way, a first century way of saying, I believe you are the Messiah who ascended from David, who has come to set the world to right. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Or the word that can be translated there, have compassion on me. And those who led the way rebuked the blind man and told him to be quiet. So they're embarrassed by the way this guy's acting. I mean, he's acting like an idiot, right? They're looking like, shut up. 
But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy or have compassion on me. I love this guy's example. Like, this is the way we should pray. Because notice for this man, like, there's no positioning, there's no posturing, there's no trying to convince God I'm a great person, there's no bargaining with him, there's just Jesus, have mercy on me. And look at how Jesus responds. He stopped and he ordered the man to be brought to him, and when he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Which, by the way, Jesus knew exactly what this man wanted. He could tell the man was blind. So why does he ask him? Because the only thing that Jesus needs from you is your neediness. If you want to experience salvation. If you want to experience healing. He says, what do you want me to do? He makes the man say it. He says, Lord, I want to see. And so in verse 42, Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also began to praise God. The point I just want to make is this. Jesus is compassionate, but because he is not only compassionate, but also gracious, he actually does something with his compassion. There is no spot anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus sees someone, has pity on them, and says, oh, man, that just really breaks my heart, but there's nothing I can do. My hands are tied. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Right? Peace be with you. Nowhere do you see that in Scripture. Because he is compassionate and gracious, he moves towards people in their most needy and vulnerable moments question I want to ask you this morning is the same true for you is the same true for you is the same true for me sometimes I get so stirred up emotionally from a sermon I hear or a book I read or a song I listen to but then I do nothing about it my heart breaks for my lost neighbor ah, I just don't think I'm going to share the gospel with you not today God begins to lay on my heart to give to someone in need, but eh, I've got some bills to pay. And if I begin to think about how someone has hurt me and how I need to move towards them and forgive them, but man, it just seems like I'm in more control if I hold on to bitterness. And maybe that's where some of you are today. Like you, you, you feel emotionally about something, but you do not act on that. Or maybe for some of you, you're doing a lot of stuff right now. You're serving like crazy in the church, but it's not from a good place in your heart. I think about my kids whenever I walk into the room and the room is a wreck because I'm a neat freak. I'm like, somebody needs to get in here and clean this room up right now. To which Nora and Wyatt are always like, Nora's like, it's Wyatt's fault. Wyatt's like, it's Nora's fault. Like they share a room together. And so I'm just like, okay, well, here's the deal. Like I'll clean it up. But if so, like I'm going to take your allowance money because I ain't, I ain't doing it for free. Right? Like, or I'll just give your toys away if you can't take care of them. And then when I say that, here's what they do. Okay. And it's like that little penguin walk to the room. You know what I'm saying? Like. Now, is that obedience? Not really. Not really. And sometimes, like, full disclosure, that's the way I am with God. Jared, have a gospel conversation. Jared, dig into your pocket and give a little bit more. Okay. Right? And listen, what you need to know is, like, God's not like that. Like, God's feelings and his actions are always in sync. He is compassionate and gracious. So when God is, is blessing you or forgiving you or moving towards you, it is never out of, okay, it's just what I got to do because I'm God. It's never out of duty. It's always out of delight. And that's what we see right here in Luke 18 where Jesus, out of compassion, he actually feels compassion towards the blind man and in grace moves towards him and heals him. Which for the record, Jesus does not do this because he's like the first century version of uh, Mr. Rogers. 
Okay? It's not like he just does it because he's really nice. The reason Jesus does this is because he views God the Father as being just like this, as one who is compassionate and gracious. And we see this in Luke 15, and this is where I'll end this morning. So just flip with me over to Luke chapter 15, and I want you to see this. This is so profound. Jesus here is telling a story to a group of Pharisees who were the super spiritual people of the day who would look down on people like you and me for not being spiritual enough. And God, or Jesus is now going to tell them a story to highlight the love of God the Father. And the short version of the story is to kind of catch you up. A uh, father has two sons, a younger son, older son. The younger son comes to his dad and says, I want my inheritance, which in the first century was the way the younger son for saying, I wish you were dead. I don't even want you to be alive anymore. Uh, I could care less. I don't really want you. I just want your stuff. And rather than the father just writing the son off, he gives him his inheritance. And you know the story. The son moves off, does a bunch of crazy stuff. Sometime later, he runs out of money, runs out of friends, runs out of sex. His life is a disaster. And so he's hanging out with some pigs. And Jesus says, the man comes to his senses and says, I'm going to go back home and see if my dad will at least take me in as a servant. So that's where we are. Verse 20. So he got up and he went to his father. But look at this. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with what? Compassion for him. And he ran. If you, if you highlight in your Bible, I would circle that. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Just so you know, in the first century, grown men didn't run. Which I know some of you are like, I still don't run. You know, like 21st century, right? But if you were a man, you definitely did not run in the first century because for a man to run was to expose a man's knees. And in a shame-honor culture, that was a huge disgrace. But here's what I love. Sometimes there comes a time where your emotions dominate your heart in such a way you don't care what anybody else thinks about you. That's what's happening right here in this moment. I think about a Jimmy V, who is the, uh, the coach for the North Carolina State, was it Wolfpack? Is that their mascot? In 1993, and against all odds, they won their national championship. And in this iconic image, here he is, Coach Jimmy V, he is running across the court. And if you watch the video, he's just looking for anybody to hug and embrace. And after it was over, a, a reporter said, man, you look crazy in that moment. And he said, I was, man, we just won the national championship. And I think about this image, and I think about the father here in Luke 15, where someone would say, you look like a madman running to your son like that. And he's like, yeah, I know he was lost, but now he's found. Like, I just can't help it. Like, that's the image here in Luke 15. The father runs to his son in verse 21. The father starts his speech. I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your servant. But the father has none of it. He said to his servants, quick. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost and is found. So they began to party. Do you realize that according to Jesus, this is his view of God? If Jesus walked in the room and you said, quick, tell me what God is like, he'd say, well, it's kind of like a father with two sons. And he would point you to this picture right here. Just feel that for a moment. To Jesus, the creator of the universe is not 
an angry, contentious old man in the sky who's waiting for you to mess up so he can zap you with lightning. Now, does he get angry? Yes. But according to Jesus, God at the core of his being is like a father who runs to embrace with love the prodigal son. For Jesus, God is compassionate and gracious. Which is why in Luke chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, right in Jesus is the middle of his teaching on what kingdom or life in the kingdom of God is like, he says in Luke 6.35, love your enemies. Love the people around you who are ungrateful, who are wicked. Love the Ninevites. Love the people who have hurt you. And then in verse 36, and you might want to underline this at some point in your Bible, he says this, be compassionate. Why? Because God your Father is compassionate. This, according to Henry Nouwen, is perhaps the most radical statement that Jesus ever made. Be compassionate as your Father is compassionate. God's compassion is described by Jesus not simply to show me how willing God is to feel for me or to forgive my sins, but to invite me to become like God and to show the same compassion to others that he is showing to me. If the only meaning of the story were that people sin, but God forgives, I could easily begin to think of my sins as a fine occasion for God to show me his forgiveness. There'd be no real change in such an uh, interpretation, or no real challenge in such an interpretation. Look at this next line. Such sentimental romanticism is not the message of the Gospels. What I am called to make true is that whether I am the younger or the older son, I am the son of my compassionate father. I am an heir. I am destined to step into my father's place and offer to others the same compassion that he has offered to me. Being in the father's house requires that I make the father's life my own and become transformed into his image. That being said, as we end this morning, my hope is that you do not walk out of here with what Nowen calls a sentimental romanticism. Yes, I want you to leave here today with a bigger vision of God as a God who is compassionate and gracious, as a God who is not angry at you, a God who is not just waiting for you to mess up so he can stomp on you. I want you to have this vision of God as compassionate and gracious, but even more than that, I want you to have a vision not just of who God is, but who you are. I want you to be awakened to the reality of what it means for you to live as a disciple of Jesus in the world around you. I want you to, in the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, to clothe yourself in compassion. Just as you wake up tomorrow morning and you put clothes on before you walk out the door, or at least I hope you put clothes on before you walk out the door, Just as you put on a shirt and your pants and your socks, in the same way Paul says you're to put on compassion. Every single day, 365 days a year, when you crawl out of bed, you are to be a person of compassion. And out of that compassion, you are to seek to extend the same grace to others that God has already been extending to you. So to end this morning, here's my question. Has your compassion become graciousness? Does your God-given feelings produce God-honoring actions? In other words, does your heart, think about this, does your heart actually break for what breaks the heart of God? And then secondly, are you actually doing something about it in return? Whether it be in your marriage or with a coworker or a neighbor or someone in your missional community or a need in our city that God has brought to your attention, question to consider this morning 
is when people look at your life, would they say about you, that is a person who is compassionate and gracious? And if the answer to that question is no, you need to realize the reason you're not compassionate and gracious is not a personality problem, it's a theology problem. In other words, if you're the kind of person who's not compassionate and gracious, it's not like, well, I'm just a type A personality. That's just how I am, man. I'm direct. Right? That's, not, that's not the issue. The issue is you don't believe that God is compassionate and gracious to you. You still have a view of God as a God who is frustrated and disappointed in you. I was at the Green County Jail this past week meeting with a guy, 40 years old. He's about to be locked away in prison, just now going to prison for the very first time, and it's his son's senior year in high school. And I sat there and I talked with him and I said, uh, he just began to talk about how, how big of a failure he feels like he is. And I said, what do you think God thinks about you? And he just began to weep and he goes, he's just looking at me and saying, what's your problem? What's your problem? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like, pull yourself together, man. For some of you, like, that's the way you think God is looking at you. You think God is still mad at you because you're not working hard enough, or because you've not done enough. And listen, more than you need to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps this morning, you need to look to the cross. Because at the cross, God the Father was running after you just as the Father in Luke 15 was running after the prodigal son. At the cross, God was literally exposing himself to scorn and ridicule and shame. And for what? For the purpose of bringing you home. For the purpose of giving you what you need the most, which is a relationship with him. Do you realize at the cross, literally... God was giving you his best even when you were at your worst. And if that is true, what in the world makes you think that he's going to hold back on you now? He is compassionate and gracious. So where do you need compassion? Where do you need some grace this morning? No matter who you are or what you've done, his grace is sufficient for you. I want you to come in just a moment. We're going to take a communion as the band comes forward. Go ahead and... Before we start shuffling around too much, let's just search our hearts and just wrestle with that question. Where do I need compassion? Where do I need to feel the compassion and the grace of a loving Father? Some of you have never felt that. One of the things that hurts God the most is your harsh thoughts towards Him because He is not harsh. In just a moment, we're going to take communion. We have two stations in the front, two in the back, gluten-free option for you in my back left, your back right, tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice. If you're here today, though, and you've never trusted in Jesus who brings us into the relationship with his Father, I would encourage you to come talk to me. I'll be up here in the front. I would love to talk to you about what next steps looks like to enter into a relationship with this God. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. We'll take communion and sing one more song and be dismissed. Father, thank you for declaring to us this morning your name through your word. Forgive us for trying to make you into something or someone that you're not. God, I pray for the, the man or the woman who is here that is still functioning as that hurt little boy or girl who never heard the affirmation of a loving father, who every time they screwed up, they had hell to pay, who is walking around with so much guilt and shame and fear right now who feel so far from you. And Holy Spirit, that you would open their eyes to see you, God, as you are.
And they would realize they don't even have to feel that you're that way. You are that way. And that therefore they would just open up their arms and allow you to embrace them. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray and ask these things. Amen.